Hello and welcome to episode 178 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Sacramento, California. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. What's happening, Ben? Uh, not a whole lot. Almost recovered from my sickness. Oh, yeah. I saw you. I was at your house like two days ago. I can't believe that. I broke into your garage at 3 a.m. You did. I had no idea. So you, you, you're you a good, um, what is it? Stealth guest? Stealth house guest? Stealth guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, I'm an theory. excellent thief as long as you just give me the code to open your garage. Then I, <laughs> I'm really yeah. good at it. But apparently I was able to to break in in the middle of the night without waking any of the Olsen boys, which is, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty good. Today on the show, we are we have an interview. We're really excited about attorney and author Rachel Gezersay, who just wrote a book called The Law Career Playbook. And uh, we have a great interview with her all about uh, how to hustle and get yourself a job in law. Ben, what do you want to say about that interview, which we pre-recorded? It went really well. I think that she's got great advice for anyone who's in law school and anyone who's considering law school. So I would listen up and uh, even if you abandon your law school dreams, which is probably a good idea, I think that her advice is still applicable. Yeah. I, I thought it was very good. I mean, she went to Southwestern Law School and hustled her way to a successful career in big law. I think the most amazing thing she said, she was in the top 10% of her class and career services at Southwestern was like, you're not going to work in big law. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's that's what's up out there, y'all. And uh, but she made it happen because she, you know, she did get excellent grades, but then she also mm-hmm. just really hustled and used all of her connections and sent out a bazillion emails. And anyway, you'll hear all about that on the interview. But check out her blog and check out her book uh, for sure. It, I mean, I don't how much is the book? Twenty bucks, probably um, something like that. <laughs> for, well worth like every your whole career. Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Also, I would have to say, you know, if you're not willing to do the stuff that she's talking about, then you, you maybe just need to have a tough conversation with yourself about whether you're going to be able to get this, you know, career that you think you're going to get from going to law school. It, it is going to require hustle for just about everybody, right? Yeah. So, by the way, I'm listening to this book by David Goggins, and he talks about talking to yourself in the mirror and yep. having these harsh conversations. And I would say that you need to have this conversation while you're looking yourself in the mirror and say, <laughs> look, dumbass, <laughs> it's okay to be honest with yourself and just say, is this what I really want? If it is, then go get it. If it's not, then accept that and go get something else and work your butt off for it. Yes, completely. Absolutely. Um, you can email the show anytime you have questions, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you know of great guests for the show you want to propose, uh, definitely send us an email. If you just want to ask us an LSAT question, again, help at thinkinglsat.com. Send us your uh, selfies while you're studying or just, uh, I don't know, while you're climbing Mount Everest or whatever you're out there doing. Uh, we like to put a face with your name. Uh, just a reminder that you can listen to the show all sorts of ways. Uh, Apple Podcasts, of course. If you're on Android, most people listen probably via the Stitcher app. But uh, Spotify is also a really good way to find us. And you can do that on Apple and Android, both. The show's on YouTube. We You can listen it's to us. It's also on Alexa. It's Oh, Sorry, you can just say Alexa Play? Yeah, yeah, just say Alexa Play the Thinking LSAT podcast. Now everybody's Alexa out there oh, in the world is going to yeah. start playing the Thinking LSAT podcast. But that's good. We should keep doing that. Um, <laughs> although they were already listening to it. So now it's going to be a big double pain in the ass for them. Um, yeah. 
we uh, we're very excited. Thank you very much for people who sent in graphics. Uh, we got uh, a couple of uh, LSAT Demon graphics sent in uh, recently. And oh boy, now I'm going to botch this because I forgot the name. Do you remember the name? <laughs> who sent in the super super awesome one? No, I never saw the name actually. But that was oh. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Hold on. We we have to. Uh, well. Anyway, we'll I'll look it up and we'll we'll give you a shout out. You does, definitely deserve it. The new praise the demon uh, logo that <laughs> is going to have to be on some t shirts and potentially uh, tattoos on on LSAT teachers. You going to get a praise the demon uh, tattoo, Ben? Tattoo. I'll do um, it if you do well, it. Well. So. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um. This is reminding me of the office episode when. And he got his ass tattooed. Um, <laughs> in any case, I think uh, I think my preference for a tattoo is more of a simple, like almost like um, symbolic uh, sort of tattoo. So uh, barbed I, wire I, around your bicep. <laughs> no, <laughs> more or less like uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards a chevron sign. Not that I have any affinity towards chevron it just happens to look like a chevron symbol well it's yeah it was it was called a chevron before there was the chevron corporation oh really i had no idea what where the heck does the word chevron come from then i don't know i it sounds french to me Hmm. that would be my guess if anyone wants to tell me yeah totally we are also today going to uh spend a pretty significant amount of time on our next LSAT fundamental topic, which is going to be logical reasoning. Uh, I believe we have a pearl versus turd if we get down that far. Uh, Anything else you want to talk about today? Yeah, you came to D.C. I came to D.C. and it was super fun. Oh, right. We went to uh, George Washington and that was delightful. Yeah, we met Marcus there, the pre-law advisor there, and uh, we talked to a group where over 103 people RSVP'd. Not that many people showed up, but there was still a large crowd, a fun crowd. They had a lot of good questions for the changes to the LSAT in 2019. <laughs> over 103 people? What? No. <laughs> yes, because 104 signed up. I actually have no idea why I said that. Um yeah that's like saying we're in the top 14 exactly Um, yeah yeah because we're 14 um in any case yeah so there were uh there there were good people there and it was fun and then afterward we went to circa and um had drinks and some really good uh what were they what, what was that the green stuff you got was that um brussels sprouts Yes, the Brussels sprouts were delicious. They were, they were made with bacon I mean, put... and blue cheese and balsamic. <laughs> the Brussels sprouts were delicious. I also yeah. enjoyed the cauliflower that I ordered, and I also enjoyed my old fashions. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was a, a great time. Uh, we are we want to take our show on the road, don't we, Ben? Um, if your pre-law society would like to invite us onto campus, I think Marcus was very happy with our presentation at. Uh, at GW, we we brought out a pretty good crowd, so we'd love to come um, do a presentation on the changes to the LSAT that are happening in 2019. You can email help at thinkinglsat.com if you want to connect us to your pre-law association or pre-law advisor. 
um, it's a pretty turnkey deal. We can uh, we can even send flyers and stuff to help promote the event in advance. We'll uh, we'll show up and we'll do a presentation. So let us yeah, know. Yeah. Well, Marcus was originally expecting a, a smaller crowd, maybe twenty or so people, to show up. And once we told you all, and you told whoever you told, um, the the numbers skyrocketed. So he was excited about that. Yeah, it was super cool. Our current and former students of mine, um, Stephanie, who is an alum of my class in San Francisco, and now just got sworn in to to the bar in DC came and just showed up and said hi before the thing. So it's, it's nice to get out and just uh, connect with everybody, especially because yeah. we did the drinks afterward. That's, that's yeah. always a good time. There are, uh, you know, 1,200 something members in the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. You can like the Thinking LSAT Facebook page if, if you're a Facebook person. Um, we're at Thinking LSAT at, at Infox and at Olson Benjamin on Twitter. We are on Instagram as well, with at Thinking LSAT on Instagram, and there's all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, we have a, a cartoon <laughs> that someone drew of me and Ben. We have uh, yeah. LSAT Demon fan art. We got all kinds of stuff going on on Instagram, so check us out over there, please. Strategyprep.com to learn about Ben's stuff in DC. Uh, my website is foxlsat.com to learn about my classes in uh, LA and San Francisco. We both have all kinds of online and one-on-one options. We tutor people individually via Skype all the time. Um, you can book those through our website. LSATdemon.com if you want to really get on board the uh, future of how to study for the LSAT. You can do a free trial at LSATdemon.com. Check it out. Okay, so let's uh, cut right to our interview. So today on the show, we're excited. We have business litigator um, and author, Rachel Gezersay. And Rachel, you just wrote a new book called The Law Career Playbook, which I'm sure our listeners will be really excited to hear about. How was your Friday? It was great. I just I just got back from a demur hearing that, that I won. So that's always, uh, always a, good, a good Friday afternoon. Congratulations. Um, you went to Southwestern Law School. You did business litigation at Jones Day for 10 years. You're now a partner at a boutique law firm. How do you say it? Lang Lee? Liang Lai LLP. Yes, in Los Angeles. Liang Lai. Well, I got both of them wrong. LLP in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, talk a little bit about your book. It's really an interesting story. Yeah. So my book is the law career playbook. And, you know, it's, it's, it was a a long time coming. I actually, uh, when I was still at Jones day, I started a blog called break into biglaw.com. It's, it's actually still live and and still active, but I started the blog because I was an eighth year associate at Jones day. And I was the only person at my, from my law school who worked at this very large international law firm of, of thousands of lawyers. And that always had kind of bothered me. And, you know, I was I was not feeling uh, I wasn't the happiest of campers just in my work. And I, I decided to start a blog basically to reverse engineer and let other young lawyers know about how they, too, could break into big law in the way that I did, because my master plan was that I'd have a whole bunch of other people come into the firm just like me so that maybe that would make me happier. And so I put up this blog and I started writing and the response was huge, actually. But what I found was it wasn't so much all these people writing in all over the country who wanted to break into big law necessarily. They just wanted to know how to get a job, um, you know, because they weren't learning that in law school, unfortunately. And the, the like I said, the response was huge. I, within a year, I had 16,000 subscribers. I started being asked to speak. 
I started speaking at law schools. Um, my own law school, Southwestern, asked me to develop a course for them for their recent unemployed graduates. And I did that. And my students would always tell me, you know, Rachel, I wish that I had you standing on my shoulder telling me what to do every day. And obviously I can't do that. But I thought, well, if I put it all in a book, then at least they, they could have a step-by-step guide. And that, that's kind of how it all came about. So I'm really excited to get it out there because I know just based on experience how it's really helped people. So I'm so happy. Talk a little bit about your own uh, story from Southwestern. I remember you told us that you, the other day, you told us that you had been in the top 10% of your class, but still it didn't look like you were going to be able to get a big law job at Southwestern. Yeah, that's right. I was actually told that, you know, I was so happy. I come back, you know, I have, I made the cutoff barely. Um, and I go to my career services office and he told me, you know, he didn't mince words. He said, no, you, you, you cannot get a big lot job, Rachel. It's not going to happen for you. It's really just the top people who even get considered. No big law firms really come on campus. And, you know, I, I don't, you, you just can't rely on OCI and, and everything else. So I said, uh, okay. Um, you know, and my, my reaction to being told no is, is usually I get very angry <laughs> and I, um, I just see it as a challenge to, to be accepted. And I just decided that I was not going to accept that, that I was going to generate my own callbacks. I was going to generate my own interviews. It didn't matter to me that people didn't show up. I was going to make them notice me because I, I was top 10% and I had enough to make the cutoff. So then it was all about getting known and plugging into the profession and you know getting my name out there so that I could be considered. And I just, I, I created this massive unwieldy spreadsheet of just names of contacts of, you know, people's parents who had practiced law at some point, you know, and I just was unrelenting in, um, in contacting these people and letting them know just my, my passion to get into whatever firms. Right. And, you know, part of it too, was I did a lot of research and I figured out this was before LinkedIn or, or, you know, really kind of understanding people's connections. I figured out just through research, what people to contact through certain connections use the right names and would get in the door that way. So, you know, it was really, it was a lot of work. And uh, honestly, a lot of my colleagues at school thought I was a little bit crazy, but it worked. I actually generated four self-made callbacks with firms that had never interviewed at Southwestern like Jones Day. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was hard. I had, you know, it was so stressful that at a certain point, my neck, I remember I had this neck problem and I couldn't even, I I was, here's the thing. I was really good at, at generating interviews and not so great at actually doing the interviews. And that's why I always tell my students, if you're like me, if you're a shy person, an artsy person, a person who has imposter syndrome, a person who just isn't, who feels like they shouldn't actually be here that you really need to actually generate tons of interviews because it's all about practicing, making, you know, falling on your face, having terrible things happen, getting through it, picking yourself back up and just building that confidence. And honestly, my Jones Day interview was my last interview. And thank God for that, because I I flubbed all my other interviews that I had put together because I was just I, I, I really I was not I was shy. I wasn't ready. And I needed to go through those experiences. So that's what I tell my student. It's a volume game. You need to get out there and interview for everything and just build up your confidence that way. I feel like there are so many good takeaways here. I mean, just off the top of my head, one is persistence. I mean, (laughs) no matter what you're trying to succeed at, whether that's the LSAT or getting into law school or something else, um, getting a job, you have to kind of go into it expecting, I think, to fail. I think a lot of times people start things and they expect success too soon. Right. And then when that doesn't come, they quit, uh, not surprisingly. Um, I also think it's interesting that you said that uh, you weren't 
as good at the interviews. And maybe we need to step back and talk a little bit about the what you call informational interviews, right? And what your goal is there. But I also want to hear what you have to say on what you learned. Because a lot of times when, at least in my experience, when I'm not good at something and then I finally get better at it, I have a lot of concrete observations that maybe naturals don't have because they just naturally did it and they didn't really even realize what they were doing. And so um, anyways, I'm curious what your thoughts are on both of those things, the interviews themselves, and then uh, what you learned from them. Right. You know, and for all of my class, you know, I teach now, I teach the LLMs at USC, a whole class on this about how to, you know, how, how to be professionalism and, and, you know, how to put yourself out there. And I, and for all the classes I teach at Southwestern, the first slide that I throw up there in the first class is a picture of a sponge. Because I tell them, look, you know, you're going to have a whole bunch of experiences here. If, if you do this right, you, you're going to put yourself out there. You're going to do a ton of interviews and you got to treat it like you're soaking up the information and, and using it to your benefit. Even if it's bad information, even if it's uncomfortable information, you're still going to learn from it and you're just a sponge. So, you know, on the point of the informational interviews, the reason why they're so valuable is because, you know, it's twofold. One you're, you're getting, you know, you're getting to know someone who's a professional who's doing potentially what you want to do and you're learning from them. You're learning the lingo. You're learning what it's like to work in that office, how they talk, how, how they think of themselves, what they do, you know, it, which, which informs, you know, questions that you can ask other people if, if, if you're going to be interviewing in that office. If you start talking the way they talk. In the back of their minds, they're thinking, oh, you know, this person might, you know, I can see them working here because they're already talking like the us. And that's just from getting to know these people on a conversational level. The, the other thing, you know, that, that you get from this is you get a potential mentor, you get an advocate, you get someone who may not necessarily be able to give you a job that day. But if a job comes up or if they hear of something and they and you're first you're on their radar and you're first in mind and you've impressed them, they're going to put your name forward. So they become an advocate for you in your job search. So it's not just you against the world. You have these people working behind the scenes to get you jobs. So that's the power of the informational interview. You're a sponge. You're learning. You're soaking it up. And you're also building this network that's only going to help you. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to talk more about how... This might apply to our listeners who are thinking about going to law school. Um, I guess some have already decided, of course, and they're wondering what kind of law they might want to go into. And this, these kinds of interviews would be applicable to them. Uh, when we talked earlier, you talked about going on LinkedIn and looking for people who might be in the field that you want to go into. Do you have anything that you would recommend for people who are saying, hey, yeah, maybe I want to go interview people and get to know attorneys at firms and get to know attorneys who might be doing what I someday might want to do, uh, what would you say to them to get started? Yeah, I mean, that's the backbone of my program. Uh, and honestly, there's there's several chapters in my book devoted just to that. I have email scripts that have been proven and tested amongst my students that work, that actually get responses where you can just plug in your personal information. It's like three sentences short. And I've, I have, you know, tested these amongst my students and they've gotten responses, which I know is always the concern, right? If you put the work in, you send these emails out and no one's going to get back to me. Well, no, that's not true. There's certain things you can say in the email that will pique people's interest so that they do get back to you. But even before that, even before you send what I call the reach out email, there's a whole set of steps that you need to take to do research on LinkedIn to really identify what it is first that, that you're interested in. Right. Doing some some self-observation and, and, you know, doing some writing. And, and I have some exercises in my book to figure out, OK, this this is kind of what I want to do. A lot of times with pre-law students and even law students, 
they don't know yet what they want to do. And that's completely understandable because it's a vast world out there in the profession. So my, what I say is you, sh- you should just pick one that interests you. And I call this iteration method much, much along the lines of like a Silicon Valley product development thing where you are the product, right? You come up with something mm-hmm. you're interested in. You, you put it out there. You go on LinkedIn. You, you find firms that are doing that kind of work, attorneys at those firms doing that work. Hopefully, there's some kind of a connection that you can find on LinkedIn, maybe an alumni connection, maybe some sort of personal connection so that you can mention that in your reach out email. Then you send that email. You know, you meet with that person. And then perhaps when you meet with them, you find out, oh, um, this isn't what I want to do. I, I can't even imagine myself doing this nine to five every day for the rest of my life. Well, then you go back to the drawing board and you think of something else that interests you and you do it all again. You iterate, right? You just get better. And actually your focus and, and your goals get, get more precise that way. And that's, that's the way you do it. You just do it over and over again um, and back it up with research on LinkedIn and, you know, send out these emails and meet the people. And then the other piece of this that's really important is the follow through, right? I mean, a lot of times with students, they will do these initial meetings and then they feel like it just dies on the vine, right? They don't, they don't know what to say beyond that initial contact because they think, oh, I'm just a student. This person never wants to hear from me again. What, you know, what, what do I have to say to them? And so I have techniques in my book about how to make sure that you schedule follow-ups, how to do them, you know, how to set Google alerts so that you stay in the know on what, what these people are doing so that you can stay on their radar and you know, continue to build a thriving network based on that first contact. Yeah. I mean, I I love this idea of iterating because on the one hand, you're saying you got to plan a little bit. You got to go on LinkedIn and figure out who you want to reach out to and so forth. But on the other hand, don't let planning get in the way of just getting out there and meeting people. It just becomes an excuse to procrastinate and not really do anything. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's all about, it's a volume game and you just, my book is all about the system, right? This daily systematic things you can do every day to build on this, because honestly, it's not something that's going to be done. It's not, it's not a get rich quick scheme that you're just going to suddenly do in a weekend, right? It's a long-term process, which is why, you know, for your listeners, I think pre-law students, students who are still in college, I love speaking to those groups. I just spoke to one in San Diego, actually, because because college students have the most time to do this, right? And the most ability to go out and, and do these interviews and start building this network so that by the time they get to law school, they won't be you know, sucked into the law school machine and terrified that they don't have time to do this. Because honestly, in law school, you kind of don't have time to do this, right? It's very, very difficult in that first year to find the time to, to build out your network. If you're already doing it in college, that network's already there for you. Then it just becomes a support system to help you through and, you know, to help you through that first year. And you can check in with people because you've already built that infrastructure in your life. So I think I know your answer already, Rachel, but when someone, uh, you know, an undergrad, a uh, sophomore or a junior or senior in college says, hey, should I go to law school? <laughs> how, do, how do I know whether I should go to law school? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, my, my answer is talk to people, right? Same thing. Do treat these informational interviews as information about whether you should go to law school and, and ask their honest advice. I mean, people, attorneys, they, they want to give back. You know, my experience has been people are busy. And yes, you know, it may be hard to get a hold of them initially. But once you peg them down and get them talking about themselves and their journey, they are happy to share and happy to mentor. And they'll tell you, frankly, whether you should go to law school and what their path was and, you know, whether what regrets or non-regrets that they have. Um, and, and gathering that intel now will help you make the right decision for yourself. 
then they say, um, I get a lot. Everybody, they go, yeah, everyone I talked to told me not to do it. <laughs> right. I mean, look, you know, I think we got, I, I do think, and actually just when I spoke to that group in San Diego, there was a young lady who's in, who's in the pre-law society who said, look, I'm just here now for the social events. I love this group. No way am I going to law school. <laughs> right. And it's like, I, I respect that. Look, you know, it is our job. My job is hard. <laughs> it is on a daily basis. It is difficult. And if I didn't love it, if I didn't get the thrill, like the thrill that I have right now, having won that hearing today and, and the work that goes into it actually found it interesting, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do this either. You know, and so you really got to talk to people and figure out what is it that these people do? What do they get up and do in the morning? I mean, what am I signing myself up for? And if that doesn't sound good to you after talking to a lot of people, then yeah, do the soul searching and, and put it off. I mean, I, that, that's fine. The, the, there's a vast world of opportunities out there to do other things. And with the debt load. Say, <laughs> yeah, the debt load we talk about all the time. Yeah. Can you say a bit about why your job is so hard? You know, because... Because... For the for the kind of the kind of clients that I have and the work that I do, it's usually because it's it's nearly an unsolvable problem that they're bringing me to problem solve for them, right? And so you know the onus is on me to do the best job for the client, and I feel that every day. Like I take that very very much to heart. I understand and feel in my gut and bones the impact of every little decision, whether it's even a procedural decision could potentially have for my client. And I take that to heart. That's why it's hard. You know, there's just, it's the practice of law. I just, it's never perfection. It's really about, you, you get better, hopefully every day. And if you make mistakes, hopefully you learn from them, but there's just, there's a lot involved. It's very, it's, it's difficult. I, I feel like the reason you're successful is because you take it to heart. I can imagine a lot of people yeah. who don't, and that's why they're not where you are today. <laughs> People can't trust them, right, to deliver. Right. I mean, look, you know, I've had I've had the working at Jones Day. I just I've been really lucky. I, I feel like most all of my colleagues and look, I'm still very close, actually, with Jones Day folks. I'm staring at my old office right now through my window and I run into these guys all the time because I just work across the street now. But it's just I've been really fortunate to work amongst people who took this as a calling. Right. Like this is. Who, who practice law as if, you know, it is the most important thing. And so, you know, my experience has been, I've been surrounded by lawyers who really care and I hold myself to that same standard. And, you know, sometimes it's really tough, but I, I try to meet it every day. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just, I'm excited to try some of this in my own life. I feel like there are things that I'm interested in that go outside of the LSAT and whatnot. And, I would say just from this interview and when we talked earlier, I've felt motivated to reach out to people and just get to know people. Because one thing I think you said last time was that, and you you, you sort of touched on it t tonight, that we feel like these people don't have time to get back to us. But I think that's how everyone who's trying to reach out to them feels. And so they don't reach out to them. Right. And so when you do, you're actually sort of an outlier, I imagine. Absolutely. No, I look, I do this work. I, I have a blog that says, contact me. I tell students and hardly <laughs> anyone ever reaches out to me, yeah. you know, and it's shocking. But, you know, I, I, for example, for my book, I reached out to a partner, a very renowned partner who's super scary. And I thought that he would never get back to me, you know, because I wanted to quote from my book. The guy got back to me within five minutes and said, sure. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> 
You know, it's just people, they, they do, they want to, they want their stories told, they want to give back, you know? And so definitely like people will reach out and it's, it really is, you know, you, it doesn't, it's not just for job searching. I'm with you. Like I, I do this for business development and for client contact. It's really, it's a necessary part of, of what we do. Yeah. It's actually good for you when people reach out to you. So how, how do they do that? So you can find me on the lawcareerplaybook.com, which is actually where you can purchase the book. It'll also be available on Amazon. My, my work email um, will be uh, available. You can email me on my work email. Um, my blog, Breaking the Big Law, is still live. So you can email me through there. Rachel Gezersay is a business litigator and author of the Law Career Playbook, available now. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Rachel. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Cool. Um, you know what? Can we do this Pearl versus Turd before we do the LSAT fundamental? Absolutely. Okay. So why don't you read it? Yeah. So I'm looking at an image here. So this yes. is not text. It looks to me, it says logical reasoning, pacing strategy. Yeah. This is from McGraw Hill. Those flashcards oh, Our first class dear. we did in New York. So yeah. I can't remember who it was that brought those flashcards. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, they were on my desk buried under under a bunch of other stuff because I'm like disorganized on my desk anyway. And yeah. I I saw them and I was like, "Oh man, okay, we need to do these a couple of them for pearls versus turds." So this one is from uh they're like fancy printed out LSAT flashcards. <laughs> yeah. The the logical reasoning is in like a lighter orange, and the pacing strategy is in a more a faded bold. yellow. This yeah. is fancy stuff, so it's and legit. On, so on the other side of this card, it said logical reasoning, pacing strategy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on this side, it gives you these bullet points. And I'm yeah. hoping that we find a pearl here, but I don't think we probably will. I I would disagree. I mean, given the the style and formatting of this. Um, I, I imagine that only good advice could come from this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want so you read I'm them just, and we'll find out. Uh, yeah, sure. So bullet point number one, when you work a practice section, when you work a practice section. I know, section, it's a weird mm-hmm. usage, isn't it? Yeah, although I kind of like the idea of working because this is work and you got to get used to that. Find and work all of your two best question types first. Oh, oh, did that just say what I think it said? The, that's exact. <laughs> yep. Yep. Bubble in your answers as you go. Yeah, random S- advice there. So find and work all of your quote two. Oh, I love how best is in quotes. Your quote best question types first. So if for some miracle you happen to know that you do better on some question type than another, you should go find them in the section and do that flaw question number 19 before you do that, you know strengthen question number two that you're not as quote good at <laughs> it's quote. just ridiculous <laughs> it's just outrageous so dumb i mean yeah just what you said you're, you're gonna be like oh no i'm good at must be true or whatever yeah first of all you're gonna have to read the question stem first in order to even do this strategy <laughs> which is dumb a waste of time now you're going to read the question stems of all 25 questions in the section oh and and only answer. I mean, there's like 10 types, right? So you're going to only answer like a fifth of the questions, but you're going to read 100% of the question stems. Oh, and because you're going to be getting too deep into the section. I mean, the first 10 or the first 15 are easy. No matter what type they are, including, quote, hard Yeah. 
dreaded parallel reasoning or whatever. Oh, no. And it's like that question is always so easy when it's in the first 10. You just can't miss it if you take your time with it. So this is just an absolute turd. I don't know who wrote this for McGraw-Hill, but (laughs) you go ahead and throw out the whole deck of McGraw-Hill flashcards as soon as you see that turd You know what's interesting is McGraw-Hill and Barron's, I think they've somehow infiltrated libraries. So a lot of people who are looking for free prep materials will go to their local library and then the only LSAT books that they have are Barron's and McGraw-Hill and they'll they'll borrow them from the library and start reading them. Yeah, they're they're all in the libraries. I mean, it's like when you go to libraries and bookstores, you just see only the worst LSAT books. Yep. The the good ones are just not on the shelves. It's it's yeah, it's because of, I don't know, big publishing houses uh are mobbed up somehow with Kaplan and Barron's and <laughs> McGraw-Hill, I guess, and so then they just like pump the books into the college bookstores and Barnes and Noble and everything else. Yeah. Um, that's just another reason, I guess, why Amazon is going to put everybody out of business. Yeah. All right. The next bullet point says next work, the three question types that you ranked as quote average bubble in your answers as you go. <laughs> so now we're going to go back through all 25 questions in the section again, reading like, the question. Oh, I did this one already. <laughs> yeah, right. You're going to start reading a question that you already did. And notice that it's it's actually this is actually terrible advice to bubble in your answers as you go because if you were going to do this stupid strategy you should be circling the answers so that you don't have to look at that question again. Right? And then bubble in all at once. <laughs> okay, so we've gone through the whole section twice now and we've only answered about half of the questions. Oh wait, sorry because they have according to them apparently there are seven question types. Which is fine, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Finally, work on the two question types that you ranked, quote, worst. Bubble in your answers as you go. Oh, finally, I can do question number one. (laughs) Yeah, that one was like so hard. (laughs) That was like a weekend question or something. And you're like, ooh, I don't know. I'm afraid of weekend questions. I'm not going to do number (laughs) one. You end up doing number one last in the section, potentially. (laughs) Or you end up running out of time because you've been spending so much time on number 22. That you, you know, you don't, you don't have time to get to number one. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal. All right. This is terrible advice. This is definitely a turd. And the scoreboard is now zero pearls, eight, nine turds, and two ties. Yeah. Still on the lookout for the first pearl. If you uh, hear a tip out there in the wild that you think might get the first pearl award, uh, send it to help at thinkinglsat.com. All right. You ready to talk about logical reasoning? I'm ready. Okay. So this is a ongoing series of LSAT fundamentals where Ben and I are just sort of, with a decade of LSAT experience apiece, we're kind of rebooting our thoughts about how to teach LSAT and how to learn LSAT. So we started, uh, we did last week, we did reading comprehension mm-hmm. and the, the thrust of that was like, you need to read more carefully and take things more seriously. And you have to commit to the idea that you're going to just understand the words that are on the page. Yeah. I thought it would be useful to cover that first because when we go into logical reasoning, logical reasoning questions are many reading comprehension questions before they are anything else. Would you agree with that? I would agree. 
Okay. So when you attack a section of logical reasoning, you know, when you turn to question number one, what are you thinking on question number one? So my, my number one thing is that if I can own the passage, this mini passage of three to four sentences, then it doesn't matter what they ask me. I am ready for it. And it all starts with the first sentence. I mean, I think that we were saying this last time with reading comprehension, but it's worth emphasizing again that this is not a passage-by-passage exercise. This is a sentence-by-sentence exercise. Um, When people fail to understand the passage, um, I don't want them to scan back over it and try to summarize it again. I want them to read the first sentence to themselves and then tell me what it says and then they what they think about it and where they think the author is going. Um, and those are two separate thoughts. First, you have to translate a lot of these sentences into plain English so that the ideas resonate with you. Don't just skim off the surface of your brain, right? Like, mm, yeah, I understand some of these words. But if you understand what the sentence is truly saying and then you have an rea- a reaction to it, I know that you're ready for the next sentence. Yep, you, you've got to you've got to take it more seriously and be be more critical and be more engaged when you're reading the arguments, and it just gets vastly easier. Like there, I, I've been writing all these new explanations for the demon, right? And which yeah. um, has been fun because I there are questions largely that I have never seen before, and I'm I'm getting to you know think about hey, here's how I want to explain like what if this is the first question someone in the demon sees. How do I want them mm-hmm. to understand this type of question? And it's just amazing how often it's just it's something about the first and second sentence that is like the key to the whole thing. It's like, do you understand? Did you make that connection between the first and second sentence? Because yeah. the first sentence, if it's a premise, and the second sentence, if it's a premise, if they're connected, then the entire purpose of this question is going to be to see if you're making the connection between those two premises. Like, yeah. what else could they possibly have meant if they weren't meaning, you know, this inference that you are able to draw from these two premises? And yeah. so even when I'm writing an explanation for like a must be true question, you know, I think sometimes students are like, well, it's just a must be true. So I'm not supposed to be like making inferences or I'm not supposed to be, you know, really putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And it's like or, or like I, I can't predict the answer. It must be true. You can't predict the answer. And it's like, yeah. well, sometimes you can't. Sometimes the correct answer could just be anything that was proven by any one of the premises, right? Mm-hmm. But other must-be-true questions are clearly about making a connection between two premises that connect. And you have to be like tuned in enough to go, well, if this is true and if that is true, then here's this other thing that must be true based on those two things. And what yeah. you, what you're doing there is you're actually answering the question before you're even done reading the argument or reading the question stem or reading any of the answer choices. And so yeah. this is like a super shortcut to going faster on the logical reasoning. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So to be clear, we are not reading the question stem first. Neither of us teach read the question stem first. I don't care what type of question it is before we read the argument. You have to understand the facts. You have to understand the argument before you can answer any question. So what is the value of knowing the question type before you read the argument? You agree on that, Ben? I agree. And how much are you skipping around in the logical reasoning section? 
How much am I skipping around? Are you talking about from question to question? Yeah. Oh, not at all. It's just first question. That's my job. I answer that one. Then I go to the next question. That's my job. Go to the next question. Just keep going. I love that you say that's your job because we do want to teach students to treat this as if it were work that you were doing in a professional setting with your reputation on the line. You know, that's not to say that you're going to triple check, but you're definitely not going to rush through this thing to just like, oh, probably that'll work. Probably that could be the answer. No, Mm -hmm. this is a you've got a big stack of work ahead of you. These 25 questions are all questions that you have been tasked with answering correctly. And there is a correct answer. And they can be solved. They can be figured out. So we're not like gaming the system and just, you know, oh, I I know it has to be one of these three answers, you know, uh, but I don't know, probably that one's okay. Like, I got to move on to the next one. (laughs) It's not, it's not that. That's what everyone does, though. But that's exactly wrong. You, You need to just take a breath, do question number one, get it right. And then do that again and again and again until you run out of time. Yeah. The fir- the We've talked about um, intermediate accuracy goals before on the show. I don't know if you talked about that to your students at all, Ben. Yeah. Five out of five, nine out of ten, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. If, yep. if, if you can't eventually get five out of the first five in logical reasoning uh, and nine or ten out of the first ten in logical reasoning – you're just not going to be successful on the test by missing more than one in the first 10. You, you agree with that? Yeah, you got to get to that point. I mean, you really got to get to the point where you're going to get 10 in a row at the beginning of the section. Well, you just can't miss yeah. them in the first 10. There, like, there might be one that's kind of tricky, but even that one that's kind of tricky, there's going to be a reason why the wrong answer is wrong, and there's going to be a reason why the right answer is the best answer. Yeah. You know, and and you just you have to commit to the idea that you're not gonna pick wrong answer choices. Mm-hmm. The way to get to high accuracy, students frequently don't realize that they're making two mistakes when they miss a question. Talk, yeah, talk a little bit about that, Ben. What, what? So, yeah, when you choose the wrong answer, you're missing the correct answer. The correct answer was something that you said no to, and you're choosing a wrong answer. And those wrong answers can come in two varieties. One, they could be logically worse than the correct answer and therefore wrong, or they could just be completely wrong. In other words, if um, if you got rid of the correct answer the answer that you chose would not be a viable option. And that happens more often than people realize. Totally. In, in most cases, people are thinking, oh, I chose the most tempting wrong answer. If the correct answer wasn't there, would this be correct? Would this work? And sometimes it would. Like in a strengthen question, right. you're looking for the answer that strengthens the argument the most. And maybe one answer does strengthen it more than another. And so if that correct answer were gone, the second best option would actually be correct because it would strengthen it more than the other three. But in most cases, uh, it doesn't even strengthen it at all or whatever. And so you have to figure that out and you need to be able to describe why that wrong answer is wrong using 
precise words from the passage, precise words from the answer choice, from the question itself. You need to be able to explain it logically to yourself. If you cannot do that, if you find yourself saying, oh, that answer is just worse, it's not as good of a fit, it's, quote, out of scope, whatever the hell that means, if you say, if you have these cop-outs, then you're ultimately, or another one is, this answer uses too extreme language. What language? What words? What exactly made this answer choice wrong? If you can't do that, then you don't know enough about your mistake to learn from it. And you need to be able to do the same thing for the correct answer. Yeah, it's it's multiple mistakes. So when you're reviewing, you know, you're going to make a mistake or two when you do a timed section, which, by the way, that should be the, the foundation of your LSAT prep should probably be 35-minute timed sections followed by intensive review. Everybody likes to skip out on the, on the review part or they don't know how to mm-hmm. do it properly. But the way you do it is you basically redo the question without knowing what the right answer is, trying to find the right answer. But even that isn't enough. I think a lot of times people will just be like, oh, well, oh, it wasn't B. Okay, yeah, well, then it's D. And then they check the answer key and it's D. And they're like, okay, good. And they move on. But it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold on a second. Why did you pick D incorrectly? What was it Mm. about D that makes it conclusively wrong? Yeah. How are you going to avoid that mistake next time? And why didn't you pick B? What is it about B that scared you away? Or or what is it about B that, you know, why didn't you like it the first time? Because you're going to have to get over that because that was the correct answer. And so there was some misconception there that led you away from that and toward this other trap. And those are two separate mistakes that you have to understand, both of them, in order to get maximum value out of that question. And by the way, this is like the number one tip for being efficient in the way you study because yeah. you've already done the test, you've already done the section, you know, you spent all that time. Well, now you need to make that time really pay off by learning from the mistakes that you've made. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to go back to reading the sentences a yeah. little bit more. Yeah. Um so we talked about you want to read that first sentence, you want to make sure that you understand what it's saying in plain English. And then you want to based on that understanding or that interpretation predict where you think the author is going to go with that. Oh, yeah, now, totally. people run into problems. They run into problems with these sentences because although the passages at the beginning of the section tend to be easier, easier in part because they use more plain English than they do near the end, right? Near the end, they start using more abstractions. And so sometimes people will read a sentence and I'll say, okay, what is that saying? And they'll just shrug their shoulders. They don't know what it's saying. Um, And that happens to me, too, sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I read the sentence, and I'm like, what? What was being said there? But here's what you need to do. You need to dig in. You need to not accept the fact that you can't understand it. You need to get that idea out of your head and, at the very least, make a prediction of what you think it's saying. So say, look, it's not like you don't understand anything every word in that sentence. So to the best of your ability, say, I think this sentence could be saying X or it could be saying Y. I'm not sure whether it's X or Y, but by making that prediction, when you read the sentence that comes after it, you're much more likely to recognize what was 
being said. You're like, oh, well, there's no way it could be why in light of the next sentence I'm reading right now. So it has to be my initial interpretation, and now this passage is starting to make a little more sense. At the very minimum, you're trying. You're trying to learn how to translate convoluted garbage, and that's what attorneys do. They yeah. read convoluted shit and they turn it into <laughs> pearls. That, well, for real, like that's your job. You know, your job is to make sense of this mess of a contract or make sense of the whatever mess of law you're looking at. Like you just got to figure it out. Um, yeah. I want to give an example maybe of, of the kind yeah. of tuned in that we're talking about here and the kind of predicting what's going to come next. Um, mm-hmm. You know, suppose the argument started with, If you're a lawyer, you went to law school, what do you expect them to do next? Or what what are you thinking? Like, where should that go? What should they do with that? Yeah. So if that's what they said, if they said, if you're a lawyer, then you went to law school, I might anticipate something like Joey's a lawyer, or maybe if you went to law school, then you had to give up three years of your life or something like that. Either build off the last idea or start telling me about someone who might have one of these characteristics. Yeah. If if you say like, if you're a lawyer, then you went to law school. Mm -hmm. Joey is a lawyer. And now you're going to fill in the blank for them, right? Yeah. Well, at that point, yeah, you need to stop and you say, wait a sec, if Joey's, Joey's a lawyer and they just told me that lawyer, if, you, if you're a lawyer, then you went to law school. I now know for sure that Joey went to law school. And then if the conclusion comes after that, who knows what will come next, but maybe the conclusion. Therefore, Joey wanted to go to law school. You might be like, wait a second. I know that Joey went to law school, but I have no clue whether he wanted to go to law school because we've never talked about that. And I guarantee you the correct answer will probably have something to do with that disconnect. Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's a strength in question, weak in question, flaw, assumption. They could ask all manner of questions based on that same like shitty argument. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're going to be able to even predict the answer right before before you even get done reading the facts. So let's yeah. start over. If you are a lawyer, you went to law school. Nathan went to law school, so mm, yeah, you're like, oh, I bet they're going to say that he's a lawyer, and they're going to be wrong. Which is called confusing sufficient for necessary. It's the LSAT's most common flaw. It's on every single test. It's like a freebie on the logical reasoning when they do that, right? And you should actually know that they did that before you're done. Re- I mean, unless they do it in the very last sentence, which maybe they might do. But if the first two sentences confuse sufficient for necessary, and then it goes on for three more sentences after that. Yeah. The three more sentences after that are almost always just a distraction. They're there to build wrong answer choices, essentially. Yeah. You know, they're there to hide the fact that they've confused sufficient for necessary. Because when they confuse yeah. sufficient for necessary, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, the answer, it'll, it'll turn out to be a flaw question. Yeah. And the correct answer will be, it has confused sufficient for necessary. Or the correct answer will be um you know they can use the specific words right so they can say um 
The argument fails to recognize that it's possible to go to law school and decide not to practice law. Yeah. Something like that, right? Yeah. Which is just another way of describing that sufficient necessary flaw. But I just don't even give a shit what the rest of the sentences in the argument say. Not that I would skip them. I wouldn't skip them. I would read them. But like, I just know that if I caught them red-handed, you know, mm-hmm. confusing mm-hmm. sufficient for necessary or any other thing, like if I just saw some gap in the logic, mm-hmm. I'm always going to make an objection if I can object. You have to learn to be contrary, you know? Make an objection. If you see something wrong, lawyers are going to be like, hold up the show and fix it right now, right? Yeah. And then the question is going to become just vastly easier because I don't even care what the other answer choice is. Ultimately, (laughs) it's funny because students really want you to justify, like they want you to talk about wrong answers a lot. Yeah. And I'm happy to do that. You know, I I am happy to like, if you picked this one, then let's talk about why why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But... (laughs) Students sometimes want me to go through all four wrong answers and like really talk about them in a situation where, wait, but the answer was you confused sufficient for necessary. And they did that in the first two sentences. Yeah. And you just have to understand that error. It makes the makes the logical reasoning just so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sound, sounds like you're going to say something. I was just thinking about your example. Your example is a case where the the language was very easy the flaw is super common and not as easy because not many people recognize that flaw at least at first right but it's something they do need to come to recognize i was just looking through the june 2007 lsat for some uh, passages that start with even just like mildly convoluted sentences they're not that convoluted but they're the kind of sentences that i see people skimming over all the time because I think they feel like they understand it, but they haven't really internalized it. It's like that thing where they highlight or underline. Yeah. As an excuse to not actually understand it. Yeah. There's, oh, yeah, that's that's there. That's a big convoluted, <laughs> convoluted thing. Okay. Got it. It's like, no, you got don't. It. You don't got anything. <laughs> what are you talking about? What did they just say? What are they going to say next? Do you have an example of an argument? Yeah. So I'm just looking at this one. This is not actually that hard of a sentence to translate, but it's the kind of thing that I think people read quickly in part because they understand every word that's in this sentence. So this is from question 16 of section 2 in the June 2007 LSAT, which you can just Google for. It's free. Um, It'll be the first search result on LSAC.org. But in any case, um, Taylor says, researchers at a local university claim – that 61% of the information transferred during a conversation is communicated through nonverbal signals. Um, So this is the kind of sentence where I would pause for a half second and take note of a few things. One, this is a claim that researchers at a local university are making. So it's not necessarily true, right? It's just something that someone is claiming to be true. So in my mind, I have my little researchers in their lab coats chatting. And they're saying that 61% of the information transferred during a conversation. So now I'm imagining two people talking, and there's information going back and forth between them. And most of that information is communicated through nonverbal signals. So now I'm thinking to myself, oh, so maybe they raise their eyebrow, they smile, that is where most of the information is transferred. 
not through their verbal communication, in other words, their words. And I'm, and so I'm it, real skeptical mm-hmm. of that at that point, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, my question is, how do you know that? Yeah, how do you know that? Which is, which is the next step, Nathan, and I think it's great. But what, what shocks me is how many people are not only not critical, but I think they're not critical because they're not even, they're Don't not even, even think about taking it. that in, right? Yeah. It's like they read it, and I say, do you understand it? And they, every word, yeah, I understood every word. So what's it saying? And they're like, well, basically um, some researchers at a local university were saying that um, 61% of the information that you know, uh, is communicated through, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, do hello, hello. Are you paying attention? Like, if you really understood that, you wouldn't say any of those words. You just say, yeah, like when people are talking, plain, notice I'm using plain English. Yeah. When people are talking, most of their communication is somehow not what they're saying, but like through their hands or their eyes or just, it's like nonverbal. And, I don't even remember exactly what was said, but I'm now actually saying to you what was said by ima- like recalling the image in my head. If you don't have that image, then you don't have a clear picture of what's going on and how to criticize it, which is no wonder so many people sit there and shoulder shrug because they're like, it's not even clear what's happening. But as soon as they know what's happening and we start talking about it as a class, they're like, well, huh. I don't know if that's true. And it's like, well, I'm glad you can now be part of the conversation. <laughs> but even then, you know, sometimes they don't take the um, the critical stance. They still just say, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. And it's like <laughs> your job is to play devil's advocate. That's why people hate attorneys because we're always saying, yeah, but. That is your job. I mean, on logical reasoning, your job is not to – agree with the speaker you don't want to be agreeable you don't want to be sitting there like nodding along going yeah uh uh-huh yeah sure Mm -hmm. sure yeah yeah i got it like no almost all of the arguments are broken they're lying to you and you have to see why and how they're lying to you i mean they're either real dumb or they're liars and either way they might be your client and if they're not your client, they might be the other team. And so you have to figure out why they are stupid or lying or both. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while, you might actually see an argument that's that's valid. But if you see an argument that's valid, you need to spot that too. But wait, Nathan, what if the uh, sentence says that most scientists agree that the world is getting warmer? Okay. Wouldn't you just agree with that? No, because my it has nothing to do with like actual facts or morals. It has everything to do with this isn't we're we're arguing here. So yep. most scientists agree that the earth is getting warmer. Well, I have to take the other side. I have to say, how do you know those scientists are right? Maybe it's the dumb scientists who agree. Um yeah. you know, like so or what? maybe they're smart, but they're still wrong. Yeah, they exactly. misunderstand something. Right, mm-hmm. right. Or the earth is getting warmer, but who cares? Yeah. I mean, I'll take all of those contrary positions. Yeah. You have to be able to put your... I mean, there are definitely traps on the LSAT where they're like just trying to get young people to pick the like environmentally friendly answer. Yeah. Or the like politically progressive answer. You know which one? The trap that I think is the most seductive on the LSAT? What? Is the assumption that 
the ultimate goal is happiness. Oh yeah, they do that all the time. Sure, right? Like don't don't let wealth get in the way because it might destroy your happiness. And everybody's like, yeah, well, totally it, makes sense. If it destroys your happiness, why would you let it get in your way? But is happiness really the end goal? And people are like, wait, that's a core tenant of my upbringing. <laughs> and everyone's really. I mean, it's like yeah, yeah. But why yeah. else are you doing things, right? But. Yes. People don't understand how amoral the LSAT is. I'm not saying it's <laughs> not immoral. immoral. No. It's yeah. a, it's just not it's not about morality. It's not about justice. It's about logic. So yeah. you know what we should do, Ben? Maybe back up a step. Can we give just an example of a valid argument? Like what is an argument? What are the pieces of an argument? How do we know whether an argument is good or bad? Yeah. No, this is an excellent point because it's one other thing that I did want to bring up. I had just written it down and was waiting for a time to bring it up. But I have this uh, – uh, don't worry. This will come around to what you're asking. But um, a long time ago, a student of mine was a physics professor, and he said, is there like a unifying principle for the LSAT? And at the time, I was sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's just a bunch of questions. you got to figure out how to answer them and just answer them and yep. be done. And I think he was approaching it from a physics like standpoint, right? Like everything is reducible to these like core like physical properties, and physics is always looking for this. And I think I kind of disappointed him because I was like, no, you just, just figure out how to answer this question. Now figure out how to answer this question type and so on. But since then <laughs> – I've actually come to the belief that there is a core principle, and that principle is just that in 20 different ways, the LSAT is trying to ask you what must be true given the information that they gave you. And that's obviously most directly happening in uh, the games because they just give you random rules and then they're trying to ask you four different ways what must be true. Because um, what cannot be true or what could be false or what could be true is still dependent on your ability to identify what must be true and then go out from there. But um, that's also true in reading comp. But it's also true in logical reasoning. In logical reasoning, we have straight up what must be true questions. But we also have questions like what's the flaw in the argument? And that depends on your ability to figure out what must be true given the premises provided and how is that different from the conclusion that the author ultimately drew? In other words, can you be given information, figure out what must be true, and recognize how some other claims are not necessarily true and thus flawed, right? And so it all comes down to what must be true in my mind. That is the unifying principle. I think that's a great point. I mean, it sh it should be pointed out here too that we're we're not actually arguing, we're not actually considering the truth or falsity of the propositions that are given to us. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, Logic Games is a perfect example of this. Um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we know that there aren't actually seven friends in trying to get into a photograph, and there's rules about who can and who can't be with. Home, right <laughs> i'm not we're not debating um whether yakira and raimundo or whatever have the relationship that the rule says they do yeah yeah we're granting them that premise and then we're we're debating what or we're figuring out what also has to be true if we grant them all of these rules about the stupid friends getting into a photograph Right. Yeah. So logical mm -hmm. reasoning is the same thing. They give you premises 
They, they state facts, and you have to accept those as true, even if you don't mm-hmm. believe in them in real life. Yep. You have to accept them as true so that you can then talk through, think through the implications, all the must-be-trues that you should be able to draw from those facts if those facts are true. Yeah. Anyway, you're going to give an example of maybe of, a, of a, an argument? Yeah. So in my mind, the most simple example is something like if you eat an apple, then you have to eat a banana. Obviously, that's not true in the real world, like what you were just saying. Totally. But if if that's presented as a premise, in other words, if that's presented as a piece of evidence in the argument, that is that the author is using to support her conclusion, then we just have to accept that claim. We say, okay, fine. If you eat an apple, then apparently you have to eat a banana. And the next premise that this lovely author might give us is, if you eat a banana, then you have to eat a carrot. And it's like, oh, wow, okay. So if I pick up that apple, then I'm going to necessarily have to pick up a banana and eat that as well. And then I'm going to necessarily have to pick up a carrot. And then the author says, we'll call her Jenny, therefore, if you eat an apple, then you will have to eat a carrot. Um, I don't like any of those premises. They're all ridiculous. But given the fact that I have to accept that they're true, if I do accept them, then I am compelled by logic to accept her conclusion because anyone who does eat an apple under these circumstances is going to end up eating a carrot. So that is a valid argument. The two premises provided prove the conclusion, and that's the standard. If the premises provided do not prove the conclusion, if they strongly, strongly support the conclusion but fail to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, then the argument is invalid. Yeah, it's it's not that well, it's not that the like conclusion of the argument is wrong. It's just that the argument hasn't proven its conclusion via its facts, right? Like yes. the argument could still potentially be improved if they had left something mm-hmm. out. You know, if you eat an apple, you have to eat a banana. Uh John ate an apple, therefore John has to eat a carrot. Yes. And that's just missing a premise, right? So there you would notice, like, oh, wait a second, carrot. Where does carrot come from? Mm-hmm. Huh, if you eat an apple, you have to eat a banana. So John ate an apple, so I know John ate a banana. But now you're saying he had to eat a carrot. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, did you leave out if you eat a banana, you have to eat a carrot? Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and you can see a lawyer doing that, right? A lawyer would be like sitting there with their dumbass client going like, hey, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Yeah. What do you want? What are you trying to prove here? What this did this happen? Do you have this fact? Do you have this documentation? Can we put this into the brief? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was a great example, Ben, of a of a logically valid argument. I think I like doing this as a you know foundation mm-hmm. because it's important that people realize. I think sometimes people get in the mode of like I don't even know what it looks like to have to have valid logic. Like just everything's yeah. bullshit. I don't know. It's all just bullshit. It's all just words. I don't know if their college education did that to them or not. You know, like if they just did a whole bunch of like, I don't know, poli sci or like just writing a bunch of essays where there's like sort of your opinion. Yeah. (laughs) This ain't about opinion. The LSAT is not about opinion. It's 0% about opinion. Well, you know, what's interesting to me to tangent here on college education. Sure. So we work with people one-on-one all the time 
And some of their challenges involve failing to correctly interpret what they're reading, right? Like they might be 90% there, but they're still off, which is then the source of their problem. And I always wonder, I'm like, okay, where did I learn to read as precisely and accurately as I did? Probably through the LSAT, really. That's really where it came, right? Like, try again, try again, get it wrong, try again, get it wrong. Oh, finally you get one right. But, like, why Why don't schools, they have you for four years, right? Like, they're so obsessed with electives and exciting things. It's like, can you just teach people how to read accurately? Like, that would seem to be the most valuable skill, right? Math and reading. Well, I mean... mean, I'm not an educator, but I just don't understand how people leave after four years and thousands of dollars without these core skills. That's why computer science majors do so well on the LSAT. You know, yeah. computer science majors have to get it down to, you know, a one single character can crash a whole computer program, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. they get like trained through reps and reps and reps, right? <laughs> like, why is my shit crashing? Why is my shit crashing? Why is my shit crashing? And you just find mm-hmm. that like misplaced semicolon or whatever it was in your 2000 lines of all this gibberish. Yeah. But that was that one thing that was making the whole thing break. And that, that is, has like really powerful applicability on the LSAT. Yeah. Cause if they just make a subtle, just a subtle shift, you know, from, um, oh, I don't know. Like they'd be talking about someone having experiencing joy or something. And then later in the same argument, they go, therefore, this person is satisfied with their life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, hold, hold on a second. You were talking about totally joy a second break. ago. Huh? <laughs> your computer program. Your computer program would not spit that out. No, your computer would to. like not understand. The computer would be like, the computer is dumb, right? The computer is super fast, but like has no tolerance for ambiguity at all. Yeah. And so the, the computer program just goes like, wait, hold on a second. You were talking about joy. Now you're talking about satisfaction with your life. What's up? Mm-hmm. And on the LSAT, that's the type of thing that you have to catch and go, hold on. Are you saying that joy and satisfaction with your life are the same thing? Yeah. You learn to spot that and boy, does it get so much easier. And so there are, logically valid arguments on the LSAT. How many do you think, Ben, in a typical section of of 25 arguments? I mean, and they're not all arguments because there's some must-be-true questions and different types of questions mixed in. But of the 25 questions, how many of those do you think normally contain an argument that has actually been proven? I would say one or two at most. I feel like when I do encounter a valid argument, I'm surprised. Right. It's sort of like, oh, I think I might have to accept that conclusion. Yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly the right response because you're expecting it to be bullshit. You're looking for why it's bullshit. You're not looking for it to be correct. You're not on their team. You're not like listening. You know, you've got a prospective client who comes into your office all wild eyed because they want to sue somebody, right? Mm-hmm. you're not going to be like giving them all the credit in the world. Like, Oh, totally. Yeah. This makes it completely. It makes sense. <laughs> you are going to get the entire inheritance. Yeah. I'm so excited <laughs> yeah. for your case. Instead, you're going to be pointing out all of the problems with their stupid argument. And you're going to be surprised when you realize, Oh shit, you actually do have a winning case. 
Awesome. <laughs> or you have a point there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fact that she's your mother's sister does not matter. <laughs> but I'm glad you talked to me about it for 10 minutes. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's my, my, that's my experience. One or two, yeah. I, when, when, that, when I have that, I give them like a little golf clap almost, you know, like, oh, good job, yeah. LSAC. Like, you, hey, all right. Super condescendingly like, oh, yay, you did it. You made an argument for once. A valid argument. Yeah. Good job. I noticed that it was correct. I was looking to shoot holes in it. And if I can't shoot holes in it, then okay, maybe it's actually correct. And then I frequently, there, it's basically one of two question types at that point that I'm, so I'm like primed for what type of question they're going to ask me. Yeah. I think it's probably going to be either a parallel reasoning question. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or it could possibly be a, some sort of method question. A method question or maybe a main point Could question. Could be a main point question. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You know, it's um, – oh, shoot. What was I going to say? I had some, some cool thing to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's cool. Cool. Actually, but I think it's cool. But I think everything that I say is cool, which is not good. <laughs> um, no, that's not even true. I'm just talking. But sometimes, too, this golf clap thing will happen, right? Like you read the argument and you're like, oh, wow. All right, LSAC. Like, yeah, he produced a valid argument. Yeah. And it's like, which one of the following best describes the error in reasoning above? And it's like, oh, clearly I missed something. And I now need to go back and parse this all again because there's some small thing that I missed and or it might be a big thing but whatever it is i missed it and i'm like hyper focused at that point because i came to the conclusion that it was valid on my own i can't believe how many students read the question which one of the following best describes the error in reasoning above and then i say is this argument flawed and they enthusiastically say yes and it's like why and like because it's bad. It's a bad argument. I'm just not convinced. Well, you're, you might as well have just said it's valid because you really don't know why it's flawed. <laughs> you just know that it's flawed because the question told you that. And that's not helpful. In fact, that could be worse because you're deceived into thinking that you know that it's flawed when you don't know yeah. why it's flawed. And that's I've, all that really matters. Yeah, I've trained my classes. Uh, the, so every once in a while, I'll get like a real enthusiastic class and that, like, that likes to be um, irreverent. And I'll... I'll say like I'll read an argument and I'll go, all right, what do we think about that? And like four people will go, that's bullshit. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> I'm always laughing. I'm like, yep, you're right. Okay, but now you have to tell me why is it bullshit. It's yeah. great that you spotted the bullshit. Did, but did you really or are you just wanting yeah. to yell out that's bullshit? It's not <laughs> enough to just say I don't like it. It's yeah, people just you need to have a specific objection. Mm-hmm. Tell me what's wrong with it. Because if you can tell me why it's bullshit, then you've already answered the question, really, no matter what type of question it turns out to be. Yeah. Hey, can I give you another example of an argument? Sure. Okay. So for our listeners, I want you to decide whether you think this argument is valid or invalid. And remember that you have to accept the premises as true. And to help you with this process, I'm going to tell you that my first sentence is my premise. So... Every single person who smokes gets cancer. Therefore, smoking causes cancer. Ooh. I'm going to say 
That's bullshit. <laughs> but Nathan, the premise said everyone who smokes gets cancer. In other words, if you smoke, then you get cancer. You can't say that smoking causes cancer? Mm, everyone who drinks milk dies. Absolutely. So milk causes death? <laughs> no, all we know is that there's perfect correlation. Or I don't even know if there's perfect correlation because there may be other people who get cancer but not necessarily from smoking. But the point is is that perfect correlation, if two things are perfectly correlated, they always happen together. It still may not be because one causes the other. Maybe something else causes both or maybe um, it's a it's a reversed causation. <laughs> people who get cancer somehow are predisposed to smoking or something. Every single one. Uh, the point is it's kind of an extreme example, but perfect correlation even does not prove causation. You still don't necessarily know why that correlation exists. So this is great. So now we've talked about the LSAT's two most common flaws. Um, I think the, the most common flaw is confusing sufficient for necessary. Mm -hmm. And another example of that, again, is, you know, Nathan is in Sacramento. Sorry, if you're in Sacramento, you have to be in California. Nathan is in California. Therefore, Nathan is in Sacramento. Yeah. No, not necessarily, because I could be anywhere else besides Sacramento today. So that's confusing sufficient for necessary. And then the correlation causation flaw, I think, do you think that's right? Like very common, yeah. right? Probably most very second common. most common. I always maybe. say that's number two. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think it's number two as well. When you see a correlation to causation argument, what, what's the first thing you do? The first thing I think is that, yeah, maybe, maybe a causes B. If A and B happen together, maybe A causes B. But when you say, therefore, A causes B, you're telling me that this has to be true. And I'm saying, even though it could be true or may, may even be likely to be true, it doesn't have to be true, therefore, because maybe B causes A, maybe the causation is reversed, or maybe C causes A and B, maybe something else causes both, which is why there's a correlation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that A caused yeah. B. So I think you, so I think those two things, yeah. Yeah, I think you do I'm going to I'm going to say describe it as three things. Okay. Mm -hmm. You you spot that there is a correlation to causation argument, right? Yep. So because if it's a flaw question or a, it could be just a method question. Mm -hmm. They could just all all they might want from you is to spot that, to describe it as, hey, you have confused correlation for causation. Or yeah. you have inferred causation where mere correlation has been shown. That's a frequently frequent way that they would describe that, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing is just you yell that. Hey, hold on a second. You've confused correlation for causation. Now, correlation can suggest causation, but it doesn't prove it. And then the next two things are attacks, specific attacks against a correlation to causation argument. The first one is reversal of cause and effect. How do you know you say A caused B, but how do you know B didn't cause A? Yeah. And then the second one is any alternate causes, any other things that might be causing this correlation to exist besides the two variables interacting with each other, maybe there's some other third thing at play. Mm -hmm. Reversal of cause and effect doesn't always uh, work. Yeah, if there's a timing issue. Because, right. right, because death can't cause smoking. Yeah. Right? 
smoking can cause death, of course, but death can't cause smoking. Uh, so reversal in that case doesn't, doesn't make any sense. But alternate causes are always available. You can always think about, hey, how do you know it's not any other thing? How do you know Martians aren't causing this thing? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay, cool. And do you, so this is, this is interesting. In my live classes, I do cover those as the LSAT's two most common flaws. And I always yep. do it pretty, pretty early on in the class because I just, people have to get tuned into those. Yeah. I mean, those are on, both of those are just all over every single test. Yeah. I was going to say, I like to say that the third most common flaw is part to whole or hold apart. Uh huh. Just because there are so many different variants of that. You okay. Know, like with studies where you're only looking at a, a subgroup <laughs> and then you're drawing a conclusion about the group as a whole. So that's like a variant of part to whole. And so that's kind of a generic title, but there's a lot of different ways in which the LSAT likes to shift from either the whole to the part or the part to the whole. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I've noticed recently, I think, um, I mean, again, this is 2019 uh, as we record this. Recently, have you noticed that they've been doing the, uh, you called it, I think, the flawed argument flaw? I don't, I really still hate the name, but. I don't know if I, that name doesn't sound familiar. Well, I've been, so. I've been giving you bad credit for it all this time because <laughs> I don't like that. We need to come up with a better name for it, but it's basically that flaw of going a step too far. Like where you defeat someone's argument and then you get you conclude the exact opposite of what they were trying to conclude. Yeah, 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 sure. So like yeah. um You don't have enough evidence for that. Therefore you're wrong. Therefore your conclusion is wrong. Right. Yeah. And I've noticed that one popping up all over the place lately, um, on tests sure. in the eighties. So I think that one's in the top. But I mean I don't give my students a list of flaws to memorize or anything like that. I think if students study with the LSAT demon, um, they will find that they get so much better on logical reasoning questions where, especially for flaw questions, I do like to describe to my class, here's what the argument would have to have said in order for this to be the right answer. Yeah. So like the wrong answer on a flaw question, if it's going to describe circular reasoning or if it's going to describe you know some sample problem or something like that, I'll go yeah. through like, hey, here's how here's how it would sound if, if this was the right answer, because then yeah. you get so much faster when you know what all those flaws look like, then you just go, you, you can dismiss them instantly. Yeah. So I think probably LSAT demon is the best way to study logical reasoning, right? Just do a ton of LR in the demon and you're, you're going to hear plenty of descriptions, visual uh, or audio and written explanations to, to, you know, familiarize yourself with all those flaws, but I don't, do you have people memorize? I mean, should we give a list of all no. the flaws or something? No, even like what we're talking about right now, like I'm sure some people are listening and saying, well, can you give me examples of part to whole? And can you give me examples of correlation to causation and, and confusing the necessary and sufficient? Yeah. And what does that even mean? And the best way to learn is do a question, try your best to figure out what you think is wrong with it in your own words. Yes. And then, listen to or read our explanations in the demon. I I mean, this is going back to our first fundamental, but I really feel like the key to successful LSAT progress, making progress on the test, is doing the LSAT demon because you're going to do a single problem 
and then you're immediately going to learn from it. It's like instant feedback, right? When you touch a hot stove, your body doesn't wait until the next morning to tell you that it was hot. It's like, that's fucking hot. Get your hand off yep. of it now. And it's like when you get questions wrong, uh, even in a 35-minute section, you don't necessarily know until later. And if you're not reviewing right away, then you're just prolonging that feedback, yep. right? Or or maybe never even getting it because like you said, how many people just botch it on the review process? And that's like, right. what are you doing? What's the point of this? So I, I feel like the three keys are the things that we've talked about a lot, but doing the LSAT demon, which is like one question plus immediate feedback and the questions are at your skill level. Then doing time 35-minute sections to get used to that timing element and jumping from question to question, which, by the way, the LSAT demon does too. And then finally, a full-length practice test. I think that's the key. And review. If you're reviewing after each of those things, then you're just going to – I don't see how yeah. you like, won't make progress. We could talk all day about you know theory and stuff. We could write a – 500 page book about theoretical shit on logical reasoning right like describe mm -hmm. all the various methods of argumentation and de boringly describe at length all of the pot logic logical flaws and stuff you can go on wikipedia yeah. by the way if you want to like look at examples of of logical flaws it's like but it's yeah. like hundreds of them and it's all this like complicated semantics and stuff um, but the best way to learn them, the best way to learn the ones that are going to be most important on the LSAT is to just do a shit ton of LSAT questions. So just like mm -hmm. fire up the demon. Trust me, you want to know about hold apart, part to whole. Um, the LSAT is going to teach you that. All you got to yeah. do is just do it because you're going to either understand it and get it right. In which case you don't need to under to know like the names and the theory and all that shit because you got the question right. But if you do that question and you miss it, that they had given you a whole to part or part to whole flaw, well, then you're, if you miss the question, then the demon's going to be like, boom, hey, here, look at this video, R read this explanation, you know, figure yeah. out why you missed it. Yeah. Awesome. So that's LSATdemon.com <laughs> for those of you who haven't heard yet. So, and then, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, everything comes down to must be true. Like that's the really – that's the core skill and it's so much easier to remember. Like I, I have to accept certain claims. I don't have to accept conclusions whether they're intermediate or main and I just need to now start figuring out do those conclusions have to be true and when they don't, which is 98% of the time, yep. why aren't they necessarily true? And if you can do that and keep hammering away at that just like Rachel was saying, just like – keep hitting the pavement you know yeah you will get very good at reading and figuring out what must be true which is really what they talk about when they say in law school you need to think like a lawyer thinking like a lawyer means let me get some facts and then let me get some law which are basically rules and then figure out what has to happen and just do that over and yeah. over and over again. The LSAT's a good test for law school. I, I think people cry about it all the time, but I think it's actually <laughs> a very it's a very good test. You need to learn to love it. I mean, your best formula for success is to learn that it actually makes sense. It's easier than you think, but it, it also requires a little bit more uh, attention and sort of grit than you might think. You know, you have to force yourself to understand it. But when you do, it can become really fun and easy and make perfect sense. 
And you will realize that it's making you a clearer, more logical, skeptical thinker. Uh, yeah. I think you'll be a better writer, a better reader, a better lawyer if you get really good at the LSAT, for sure. By the way, when you said uh, you have to force yourself to understand it, it took me back to a memory I had of a, from a long time ago when I was studying for the test myself. There was a must-be-true question, and I know that it had two groups that like overlapped. If you could imagine like a Venn diagram with two groups overlapping in some way. Okay. Not that I would suggest drawing a Venn diagram. I'm just saying like there was. this is the memory I have in my head. I don't remember the question or anything else. I just remember reading it and asking myself, why? Why does answer A have to be true? It just didn't make sense. And I sat there on it. And I remember at one point, and this is why I remember it, I was just reading it over and over and over to myself for a good 15, 20 minutes. Like I think I got up, I drew stuff, I drew those Venn diagrams to like force myself to see it. And at one point I just put my head on the on the book on the table, you know, I just like sat it down. And then I don't remember if it was immediately after that. I think that was my memory, but that's probably not accurate. I just remember like, Oh, 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 I get it. It makes sense. It has to be true. Yep. And <laughs> I don't remember the question. I don't remember anything else, but just sometimes you have to force yourself through that like molasses and then get to that point where it's like, this makes sense. And when it does, that unlocks so many other questions down the road that are testing the exact same concept, just with different words. Yeah. And, and you, it's like students will not take the time to make that to, you know, you, you have to take that moment or two mm-hmm. to sort it out, to, to let it make sense. Cause if you're just like, Oh, that doesn't make sense. I don't really get it. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to go down to the answer choices. You're not going to get it. It's just not going to make sense. It's not going to work out for you. Yeah. So, yeah. You, and that was the case where I'd answered it and knew the answer and just didn't understand. But it's like even after the fact, you have to force yourself through to really get it. To really finally get it. Yeah. We have questions. I mean, we encounter, I, I miss an LSAT question every once in a while in class, uh, embarrassingly. Um, and I, or there, are, there will be a question that I, I find very difficult. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I go back and do them again, frequently I'm just like, oh, duh, I see. I was yeah. reading the, I was misinterpreting this, you know, I just, I was re- reading this backward or whatever, whatever it was. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. It makes crazy perfect sense, actually. Yeah. You know that, yeah. <laughs> you know the, the, we've probably talked about this before, but you know the fish one, the paper mills, dioxin one? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that question so much because it's like people will just be completely bewildered by that question. Mm-hmm. But basically the answer is just like hiding in plain sight. It's just right there in yeah. front of you. <laughs> you know? And I'll say it like a hundred times to people. I'll be like, listen, the water is going downstream. <laughs> water going is flowing away. down the river. There's new water. <laughs> and then finally, it's not the same water. It's the same fish, but it's not the same water. And then finally they get it and they're like, oh, oh. Yeah, you just got to you gotta take that time to like, win the battle of will, I think. Um, yeah. I think maybe we should wrap it up here, but I, I want to propose another um, LSAT Fundamentals segment where sure. specifically about logical reasoning, because you're, you're wanting to bring it all back to must be true, right? 
mm-hmm. which I love. Mm-hmm. I, I like this idea of you got to really understand what must be true means. <laughs> you know, you got to really understand that the LSAT is a fact-based test and it's logic. You know, there there's valid logic here and you have to be able to figure out what is validly logically must be true. Yeah. I propose that we can divide all of the different logical reasoning question types into sort of the must be true team mm-hmm. and then the kind of all others team. Like the Yeah, and even in the all others you have to have that fundamental skill of must be true, but I agree. Like you can split the section into those two types, which I call top down, bottom up, and and once you understand the difference between the two, then you understand what you're looking for as you go through the answers. Okay, so that'll be a later, um, a later fundamental where we'll we'll dig into the individual question types a little bit more, and we'll talk about them in the context of like, here's the ones that are basically just must be truey. Like here's you know there's mm-hmm. explicitly mm-hmm. must be true questions, yep. but there's also main point and flaw and uh, method and a bunch of other ones that like go under really underneath the umbrella of must be true. Yeah, and then here's mm-hmm. all the other ones that are more like bottom up, like change the argument types of questions. Yeah, and then yeah. and then we can talk about strong answer versus weak answer in that context. And I think that'll be also a useful uh, logical reasoning fundamental. Cool. But on the next Great. one, we should do games. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sounds yeah. good. So episode one seventy nine, we will have a fundamental about. LSAT logic games. I hope you're finding these discussions helpful. Please email the show help at thinkinglsat.com if you have any feedback on um, the new fundamentals segment or uh, anything else you want to talk about. Ben, anything else we, we should do before we wrap it up? That's it. Uh, thanks to Rachel Gezersay for coming on the show. Uh, really enjoyed that interview. That uh, was show number 178. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.